0: It is, it's nice to be back. I wish I could say I recognized a lot of you, but Michael hasn't seen fit to have me come back for two years. I think I was in some kind of purgatory. But uh, anyway, it is good, good to be back. I'm, I'm, I'm not banished anymore. And uh, the text I have, uh, I believe, Thrive is studying the book of Galatians. And my text is the second half of chapter 2. Not too long ago, I caught the very beginning scene of one of these cop shows on television. And uh, so these two officers, one is a rookie, one is the mentor, and they receive a call to check out a holdup at a convenience store. So the rookie cop rushes in from the car to find that there is man number one holding man number two at gunpoint. So the cop rushes in, draws his weapon, and he's shouting at these guys who are already shouting at each other, drop your weapon, drop your weapon. And it takes a while, but finally the guy holding the gun drops his weapon and gets on the floor. And the other guy, guy number two, runs out of the store. The guy who was holding the gun was actually the owner of the convenience store and he had captured the bad guy. And he got away. But That's not the point of the story. The perception of the cop who entered the store changed of man number one rather rapidly, he's not the bad guy. He's actually the good guy. Keep that in mind. Another story from our friend St. Timothy Keller. Some of you know him. And he uh, gives this uh, probably hypothetical example of uh, one kid slugs another kid in the schoolyard. Kid number one slugs kid number two. And kid number one, of course, is hauled off to the principal's office. Why did you hit that boy? And kid number one says to the principal, check his backpack it's full of weed. So again the perception of kid number one by the principal has changed radically nothing factually has changed but it's a matter of how the principal or the rookie cop view that individual. Man number one kid number one. Well those are examples of this fancy theological word that we know as justification and hopefully that will make sense and what I want to talk about today from that text in Galatians is justification and the new life that it leads to justification as I hope we'll see is not that anything has changed in you it's that God views you very differently once you're justified. So justification has both a theological and a scriptural sense, but it also has an informal sense. Now, in the informal sense, we tend not to use the word much at all. But it involves things like feeling good about yourself. And so whether you use these words or not, you might think, well, I deserve a place at the table. I'm allowed to be here. I can breathe air. My existence is justified. And to have the good opinion of others to be part of the team that in in the informal sense is to be justified your existence is welcome so you earn your paycheck you're justified your existence at your place of work is justified and hopefully you'll get a raise soon we all you know want a raise don't we And then a negative example would be, say, being fired. If you've ever had the delightful experience of saying that your services are no longer required, you know the feeling that goes with it. Unless you really badly want to get fired, most of the time it's unwelcome. And when you take that kind of a feeling to an extreme, you can wind up with a feeling of being useless, unloved, unwanted, And you know where that can go if it persists and if it's pervasive enough. It goes to despair, depression, even suicide. So, in the informal sense, justification, being justified, is being accepted by others and, in a sense, by yourself. Now, in the formal or the theological sense, to be justified is to be accepted by God. That's really all it is. We are justified before God by faith in Christ. You and I do nothing to become justified. and That's what Paul is going to say in this text from Galatians, which involves a confrontation between Peter and Paul. So when you think of justification, whether it's informal or theological, both kinds of it give a huge motivation to live, to, 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 to keep thriving. You take it away, Things go downhill pretty quickly. Maybe some of you have a grandparent who's widowed, retired, and you never call them. Well, they're alone. They're lonely. And maybe you'll hear people say this, I don't know why God has kept me around so long. People at the end of life tend to think that if they're alone and not doing anything. In the Christian sense, if you ever have the sense that God has abandoned you, if you can possibly imagine that, to be de-justified is an awful thing. Luckily, you will never have to feel that. None of us will, because the only person who ever did feel and who was unjustified was our Lord Jesus on the cross as he cried out, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, both these forms of justification are also a huge, can be a huge sense of confusion because I think all of us are aware of the things that some of us do to be justified in the eyes of others or the eyes of ourselves, you know, our appearance, our wealth, you know, things like that. But we may not be so aware of the things that we might do to be accepted, to feel accepted by God. And both of these pitfalls of justification, Paul takes up in this study of the second half of Galatians 2. Now, I suspect you've been told that Galatians has to do with the inclusion of Gentiles into the church. Because if you know the history of the church, you read the book of Acts, you know that it was almost entirely a Jewish phenomenon at the beginning. All the disciples of Jesus were also Jews. And all the initial converts we're Jewish, but then the gospel starts to go out into the known world, and lo and behold, Gentiles are attracted to Jesus, and they want to follow him too. So the controversy arises, well, do these new converts have to become Jews first? Do they have to go through circumcision? Do they have to obey the law of Moses? Do they have to do the dietary things that Jews have done for centuries? Well, that was resolved. The answer was no, they don't. And You can read about that around Acts chapter 15. So it's a a theological issue, but it's also for Paul, a very personal one, because he has been designated the apostle to the Gentiles. And in the church in Galatia, all goes well for a while, and then Peter shows up for a visit, and then things take a turn for the worse. So I'm assuming we can get the text on the screens here, so let me read the entirety of that. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, this is Peter, you may know, in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We got the rest of it? Well, if not, then I'll read it. Do we have it? Okay. Paul continues, we who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law no one will be justified. But if, in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuilt what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. And then one more. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. And in that last phrase, you can see how important this concept of justification by faith is. So, Gentile converts. Controversy, do we have them obey the law or not? See, for for the Jews of Jesus' time and, and before that, Their sense of identity and, if you will, their sense of justification came through obedience to the Torah, the law, through the temple, through circumcision, through being separated from the Gentiles. We're God's chosen. This is why we exist. And as a faithful Jew, I am justified through these things. Acts 15, as I said, resolves that. And then Peter comes for a visit and he's doing fine. He's eating with the Gentiles, which is something that Jews historically never did. You become defiled when you do that. But Peter understands the gospel and he said, sure. However, you recall from the text, there are people who come and they are committed to the law of Moses and everything that that entails. And I guess Peter was not all that convinced of the truth of the gospel because he begins to separate himself from the Gentiles, and go back to the huddle with all the Jewish kids, the in-kids. And so Paul realizes he's got to put a stop to this right away because Peter is the apostle. Imagine having to stand up to your pastor and say, you're wrong, dude. Well, imagine having to stand up to the Peter, Cephas, Simon, the one whom Jesus designated as the head of the church. But Paul confronts him, and he says, Peter, you are not living in line with the truth of the gospel. We would say today, Peter, you are a racist. You are making distinctions based on criteria that should not be. There is no difference before God. We are one in Christ. Peter, you were living Gentile style, and now you want them to conform to the old Jewish way, by your example. Peter... This is works of the law. You know darn well there's no justification in this. So you can imagine this is maybe a little bit heated. So Paul acknowledges, and I'm, I'm going to skip over some of the middle, thing, not give as much detail on some of these middle verses, like in verses 15 and 16, Paul says, yeah, there's a difference between, between Jew and Gentile. God called us to be separate from them, but now that difference is eradicated the wall is torn down, Ephesians 2 and 3. and Because of Christ, because of the cross, all are one. We are justified in Christ and in Christ alone, as our song goes. We are made right with God. Now, I think there's probably at least a couple of ways that nowadays people work at being justified. There's one on the right one on the left probably lots of variations in between so I'll give you some personal examples that I've run into from conservative religious people some years ago I'm driving with my friend Paul on some highway and the speed limits 55 and I'm doing 60 major sin because Paul looks over at the speedometer and says Ed you're speeding tone of voice bad boy You shouldn't be doing that. Well, I know Paul, and I know that he is someone who probably you could call a legalist. I'll get to legalism in just a moment. So that's one example. I had an acquaintance whose grandparents absolutely refused to read the Sunday newspaper back when people read newspapers. Why? Not that reading was a violation of the Sabbath, but people worked on the Sabbath to bring that paper to us. We will not read it. And then, I've never told Cynthia this story, I don't think, because it has to do with my uh, brand-new Christian dating life. I dated a girl, and I knew that she was a teetotaler. What I didn't know was that she thought that all Christians should be teetotalers. So we were sitting down to a meal, and I was teasing her, which I do a lot, and about, I'm going to order a drink. And she didn't say anything at the time. And I didn't order the drink because it bothered her. But sometime later she said, if you had ordered that drink, I would have gotten up and walked out. Tough stuff. But in each of these cases, there are certain matters of external observance that determine your justification. And if you don't do these or if you do these things, you're a sinner. Well, that's kind of what you might run into on the right, on the religious people. Not always. But then among the progressive people on left have their own way of justification and when you look at matters of race this is very controversial and of course not everyone feels this way but have you heard that being white automatically makes you an oppressor the color of your skin determines how you behave toward others nothing that you did or your ancestors didn't do matters your color determines who you are and in fact You've heard phrases whiteness, white privilege, white fragility. Those were invented by white people. And if you want to atone for your color, you need to abase yourselves. You need to confess regularly. Some people have done foot washing for people of color. And one theologian says this. White converts must be told when to speak and what to say. Otherwise, they will be excluded. Just because we work with them and sometimes worship with them, there should be no reason to claim that they are truly Christians. Again, not all by any means, but this is what you hear from the secular, from the left. But what both the right and the left have in common is that they are man-made forms of justification. This is what you must do, you must not do to look at yourself in the mirror and feel justified or be justified. Both of these are forms of legalism. Now, understand what legalism is and isn't. It is not obedience to the law. For we who are Christians are required to follow, to obey, to engage ourselves gladly in the law of God. But legalism is to justify yourself through good deeds. You see the difference? You may not see it outwardly, but there's an attitude of I need to earn this. Now, To be justified, I believe, is a need that God places in the soul of every human being. I need to be able to look at myself, I need to be able to look at my friends and family, and I need to stand before God justified. I think God places that in us for a good reason. But for every need that God places in us, He also gives the way it is to be fulfilled. And when it comes to justification, it comes only through Christ. And no other way whatever you may do or not do abstain from or engage in is irrelevant to justify yourself before god see the problem with legalism well there's a lot of problems with legalism it's bad enough but as peter himself said when he's arguing for gentile acceptance it didn't work for us why can we or why should we place this burden on them You got it right that time. It enslaves us, Jesus says, legalism. And worse, worse, legalism is an attempt to make God save us. It's an attempt to do so many things that God has to save us. We obligate God to do certain things like save us and bless us and answer our prayers. It puts us in charge. It is the total opposite of grace. And in legalism, God becomes the servant and I become the master. Let me take just a little sidebar. The theologians have pondered over the centuries, well, so what's the law for? Why do we still embrace it? Well, I can give you three. There's probably more. But first of all, the law reveals God's nature and his holiness. Secondly, The law reveals God's will for us. These are the standards by which I want you to live before me and in community. And thirdly, the law reveals to us our absolute inability to keep it. It doesn't work. So, that's what the law is for. So, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. And just to summarize what I'm trying to say about justification. Simply put, it's being acceptable in the eyes of self, in the front of others, and before God. For religious people, to be acceptable to God and self through works. Through secular people, acceptable to self and to others through works. And the natural tendency of, I think, every human being is to make up rules to justify ourselves. But the Bible's clear. Galatians is clear. Justification comes only through Christ. And as that very last phrase said, if keeping the law justifies us, then Christ died for nothing. And the core of the gospel goes away. Remember how Paul put it? I delivered to you the very essential things that Christ died, was buried, and was raised. And if you take away his death, and therefore the rest, you take away the Christian faith. Well, so what does justification have to do with our actual actual experience? Well, you know, we live in an age of self-improvement, of self-betterment. We solve problems. We do a good job at that. Our technology is... Superior bar none. And we're pretty proud of ourselves. You ever see, I watched in the baseball game the other night, guy hits a home run, and as he rounds third, he's going like this. Self-promotion. Spirit of our age is me. I determine. I choose. I decide for myself or some of the slogans that you hear, you be you, live your life, be authentic to yourself. And in our day and age, one of the great sins we could commit against somebody is to disagree or worse, judge somebody for the choices they've made. And I wonder, maybe this is why Christianity has fallen out of favor. Because Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, you deny yourself. So what does, what does justification get us? Well, something actually does happen in you, in your experience, when you are justified. So let's, if we can get verse 20 back up on the screen, this is the key, this is why Michael says I I hogged the best part of Galatians for myself, and he's right. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That is a mouthful. But if you wanted to put to memory one of the core verses of our faith, That's pretty core. We'll look at it in sections. And essentially what he's saying is that when you are justified, you are given a new life in Christ. But first, the old self has to go. I have been crucified. You know what that means? Executed, put to death with Christ. To be justified, something in us has to die. That is the I, or the self, or the ego, and no longer can we hold on to you be you. I, in the sense that Paul is talking about in this first phrase, is that part of our self that rebels or rebels against God. It sits, the self, the me, up as final authority now most of us are not engaged in outrageous immoral illegal acts but it's most often an attitude which is invisible it involves self-determination self-justification I'll tell you another story happened earlier this year I'm on an airplane sitting in a coach you know three together kind of smushed in and there's myself on the aisle, and then there's a woman on the window, and then later on, well, another, another young woman sat in the, in the middle. And the woman on the window side confessed that she felt kind of nervous flying. So, let's play hangman, I said. And the other gal who sat down joined us in that, and we did different words, and we got through the flight, and everyone was happy. But the last word that we used turned out to be the word Divine. Gal in the middle. And she said, That's me. I wish I'd had my wits about myself better than I did, because I think I hope I would have said, Well, what do you mean by that? Well, I can imagine a conversation because the tone of voice, when someone says something like that, is really key. You know that tone of voice communicates great things or major things. And I wonder, I, I kind of think that she would have said, you know, I'm great. Uh, I'm a cut above. I'm kind of a superior person. Um, I'm worthy. Something like that. And then I might have said, well, based on what? Who told you that? And I think she would have said, I do. It's what I decide about myself. I kind of think that's where this would have gone. That is what, whether you have that sort of arrogance or something that's a little more toned down, that's the self that must die, be crucified. And if you want a a, a much more in-depth explanation of what Paul just passed, not passes over, but doesn't explain here, is Romans 6. Don't you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death? We were buried with him, but we will also be raised with him, so it's all in Christ Because of Christ through Christ. I think in our time, this may be the hardest part of becoming a Christian. Die to self, be crucified. Because that this is the death of of the self that we have been taught to cherish and esteem and cling to like nothing else. The earliest confession of the Christian church, long before the Apostles' Creed, even was simply Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord, not you and not me. You may be familiar with Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a pastor from the Nazi era. And he wrote this, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Thank you. Why is that? Well, it appears that God is not looking for a better Version of who you are, an improved you. He wants to remake you entirely. Now, this is we, here we need to make a difference between your personality and your character. Your character is your moral fiber. Your personality is how it expresses. So, I'll give you a personal example. I am, by all those tests I take, I am an introvert. In my twenties, before I knew Christ, uh, I would. On occasion see if I could go for a whole weekend without speaking to anybody and I think I succeeded once or twice really stupid thing because of what Christ has done in me I am still an introvert but I have come to love people I love it when my kids our kids call I like to be around folks like you I enjoy and appreciate people I'm still an introvert, but what a change. That's that's what I mean, and I'm trying to illustrate. There's not a change in personality, but there is a deep, abiding change of character. The Old Testament prophets said that there would come a time when God would take out that heart of stone that is in you, and he would place in it a real human heart. Speaking of the Holy Spirit. But first, you must die. Be crucified with Christ. And I think we might say that means, well, It's you're unresponsive to that old self, to the ego, to the self-determination. Because somebody else is in charge of you. And one of the simplest and best illustrations I know of this is to depict... Uh, your life or mine is simply a throne and the difference is who sits on the throne is it christ or is it you so our job is to keep that self dethroned if you will i no longer live to continue on because why i'm crucified i'm dead and i'm buried the eye that exalts the self that wants to call the shots i no longer listen to it's dead it's dead to me and i'm dead to it And then Christ lives in me. In other words, this is the indwelling Holy Spirit. Same as Christ in you, Paul and the New Testament will use these interchangeably. But this is one of the very key promises of Scripture. That is that God wants to dwell with his people. You see that in the Garden of Eden. And you see it in ancient Israel as God dwells in the Holy of Holies, both in the tabernacle, then in the temple. You see it as God became a human being and walked among us in the person of Jesus. You see it with the Holy Spirit who indwells us, both individually and in the church. And you see it almost the very last (coughs) (coughs) verse in Revelation where the prophet writes, Now at last the, the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them and be their God. This is something that God has been wanting to do from all eternity, to live with us so closely that He's inside us. Christ lives in me. But Jesus never, ever forced Himself on anyone. As you read the Gospels, He would present, He would preach, He would heal. But He never forced anyone to be His disciple. So your job and mine is to make the Holy Spirit welcome. Learning to do this takes a long time. It takes a lifetime. We won't succeed. But this is why we have devotions, to allow the Holy Spirit in. It's why we worship. It's why we fellowship. It's why we study the Scriptures. We give access to Christ, the Holy Spirit, who lives in us. And finally, he says, the life I live in the body, present tense, August 24th, are we? In other words, my present reality. My life is with me crucified, Christ living in me, in fact, in charge of me. And one way to look at life in Christ is it's the long struggle to choose submission to him. Why would anybody do this? Well, if you go back to verse 19, which will not be on the screen, it's so that I might live, so that you might live for God, simply that. Something that also grows in us as we learn submission. And the testimony of millions of people over thousands of years is that anything I give back to Jesus he gives in return many times over. And when people give their testimonies they tend to be not very unique but they will speak of a life of joy, a life of purpose, that when you suffer, and we all do and will, there is meaning in that and hope of things to come. And the experience of the paradox that the tighter you bind yourself in submission to Christ, the freer you are. In Christ, you are justified. The Father himself wants you for himself. You are accepted. You have a place at the table. You deserve to be here. You're a brand new you. You are welcome in God's kingdom. You are beloved and treasured and a part of the family that is absolutely invaluable. You are a friend, you are a brother, a sister of Jesus Himself. So let me close with what I hope is a familiar quote. Who will bring any charge against the ones God has chosen? It is God who justifies us. Who will condemn us? No one. Because Christ Jesus is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us to secure our justification. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things to come, nor the past, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Amen. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, these are deep waters, and yet we do grasp them to some extent. So thank you for your word that teaches us what ultimate reality is, of our justification of a Father who loves us so dearly that on his behalf you came and gave yourself for him, for us. So give us the ability to wrap our our weak brains and our stuttering hearts around these truths to make them real, and as Paul says, to live for you. In the name of the one who loved us, Jesus our Lord, amen.